prepared or brace for impact. Prepare for unconventional money moves for the Mavericks who dare to defy the status quo. Introducing the financial dynamo himself, Joshua Kravchik. Welcome back, everyone, to Unconventional Money Moves Podcast. Super excited to have Renee Rodriguez with it here today. And as always, I've been telling everyone, get this my new book, Boy Who Picked Up a Penny. It's on Amazon. Check it out. And I've been following Renee for a while now. He's actually got a free event coming up on November 7th with Coach Michael Burt. So if you don't know Renee and you're looking to get better at speaking, that's definitely the event to go to. And typically, uh, I don't see you do too many free events. Uh, most of the times you have to have a good investment in order to gain access to Renee because he's one of the best speakers and super happy to have him on today. So appreciate you coming on. Um, I've done a lot of research on you and I've been following you for a while now. What I was interested to learn more about was like, how did this whole thing get started with entering into the speaking space? Because to me, that's not a, you know, not a typical profession most people take. For sure. For sure. With well, one, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. <clears throat> I think, you know, <clears throat> just like anything, it, it's responding to demand on something. And I had to go through my journey to be a speaker and get on stages and learn. <clears throat> and even just coming from where I was as somebody who was highly insecure, uh, massive anxiety on stage, not somebody that understood the process, questioning myself. Uh, it just It's just the typical story that we would all go through. And then how, finding my way through that and then being asked, hey, can you teach me how to do that? And then questioning, can am I qualified to do that? And then teaching one person and then seeing it working and then teaching another and seeing it working and then becoming better and then being bigger stages and saying, okay, this is actually valuable. Well, let me be a, <clears throat> maybe a practitioner of this. And then um, it just started evolving and growing from there. Just more and more people asking and kept getting better and better at it. Yeah, because I mean, speaking in front of an audience is like one of the biggest fears people have, like heights, public <clears> speaking. <throat> Yet, you know, even if you're speaking with your husband or your wife or just a friend, I mean, I consider that public speaking, be able to convey the message that you want to hear to people. So like, who approached you to was like, hey, like, you're really good at this. Like, can you help me with that? Like, how did that, how'd that go down? Well, I think it happened because I was actually doing trainings and people would ask me how to do it. And so I was in front of rooms doing it and people would say, I, I need help doing this. Can you help me craft a message? And I would help them one-on-one. -on -one. And then having gone through my own training and being trained, I realized that this is the, this kind of stuff is best learned in groups because you, you can't learn how to shoot a gun for war unless you're in war-like conditions. You can't learn in a simulator and be ready for the battle. It just doesn't work. The chemistry isn't the same. The, <clears throat> the external stressors aren't the same. The triggers aren't the same. And so it's kind of the same for speaking. We wanted to develop a way that we could put you in, in the battlefield of speaking, if you will, which really means an eyeball uh, with eyeballs on you, being in front of, physically in front of a room in a place where you're going to get judged. And then what do you do? deal with the inner chemistry in that moment? How do you manage that stress response to still get access to what you had practiced? And then, okay, how do you practice? Well, how do you prepare? What is the talk? What's the sequence? What's the sign? I mean, it's just an endless rabbit hole of 
<clears throat> 30 years of putting it all together. So, it, and it's still learning and growing. It's still adjusting and it's still adapting, which is what's fun. Yeah. Cause I mean, when you're speaking in front of an audience, you know, you can't just keep doing the same speech over and over because who, I mean, you can watch your favorite movie a bunch of times. I mean, you know, it's going to happen. So like you constantly have to be improving, which I definitely see that you've always been doing from what I see online and whatnot. And you have a phenomenal voice, like whether you knew that or not starting out, like your voice and your cadence is just like on point, which is like a secret superpower almost. So how did you like, you know, take that and transform it into like showing other people how to do it? Like, could you walk the audience through that? Yeah. Well, I think voice, if we put quotes around the word, your voice, there's there's the physical sound, there's the actual auditory sound of it, right? You know, deeper voice, things like that. <clears throat> I didn't always have a voice like this. So I didn't always speak from a diaphragm. Now it's just habit. It's what I do. But before I would speak from my throat and I was up here and if I can do it up here. And so I, I spoke more like this and I would talk about things and the, the, you notice that the, the bass is, is gone. It doesn't resonate the same. It doesn't project the same. So you a have lot to train your voice. There. Yes. Yeah, oh, so I mean, wow. if you move it, that's amazing if you move it down yeah well it just it just moves down and but then it's also i i and this is the weird part this is where it's, it gets really interesting is that i believe also <clears throat> your voice is a reflection of what's happening inside and so finding your voice is your inner voice your belief and your confidence in what's going on the depth and the resonance comes from the depth of knowledge and the depth of what's going on i think it's hard to be brand new at something and to speak profoundly about it and so there's a time commitment to learning things. There's an experiential component to it of how much experience you have in something. There's a depth of conviction in terms of what you believe. And I think that that grounds you and it grounds your voice and it grounds the cadence. You don't, you, you, you'll like, for me, there's a part of me that wants to be more animated on these podcasts because, you know, if I'm just a talking head, I'm, I'm typically a pretty calm speaker, but I try to be profound in that sense because I'm also thinking and sharing the thought process and trying to cause that kind of thinking in the audience. But for a some crowds, it's it's a little bit dull and, and boring. On a, a podcast, if you're listening, it sounds great. If you're watching the video, you know, I'm like I am right now versus like, okay, let's talk about this. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, like it's not typically me. And so even though I probably should be more that way and I'm, I'm trying to kind of edge myself into that, but I do get animated around things that truly are passionate for me. Some of the things are thought provoking. And so I'll, I will just, and I'm not trying to, that's the problem is that just, I am a thoughtful person. And so I'm, I'm usually thinking a lot before I speak. And so I need to, you know, marry all of those different pieces. But in essence, the voice does come from the inner work of who you are, what you believe, the, the experience you've been on. And if you do believe in that experience and you do have some level of, of confidence in it, it does reflect in your voice. Yeah. And we've definitely seen throughout history, like there used to be the radio guys or like, you know, they had like the really crazy voice to like get people interested. And now you don't even hear that voice anymore. So yeah. it seems like what, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm understanding is you have to almost adjust your voice to the audience and at the same time, make sure you're being your true authentic self. Otherwise the audience is going to see right through you, which could be difficult because, you know, sometimes people are like, you know, I don't want to be fake, but ultimately, you know, if I have my husband cap on versus my professional cap on, that's going to look a little bit different. It's the same person, yeah. <clears throat> but it's, um, you know, you might react a little differently depending on what arena you're in. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, think about it like golf clubs. 
right? You have a bag of golf clubs. There's more than just one. And you have to assess the situation that you're in first to choose your club. And some situations are more animated than others. Some situations are more um, authoritative than others. Some situations are more lighthearted. And those are all different techniques, all of which are authentic to me. All of, and, but to me, my authentic self wants to resonate with an audience and meet them where they're at. And so if they are in a, you know, happy and great, highly energy, high energy mood, I'll, I'll come to that same place because I'll probably feed off of it too. And I'll, they'll, I, I have to allow the audience to infect me as much as I want to infect them. And so if they're low energy and they're, they're, they're full of excuses, I might get them to a little bit more of a high energy stern or more of a, let's wake up kind of a, a of an approach because I want to have that impact on them. But it is about being fully present in that moment and what what do I feel that they need and how best can my style serve them in that moment? So when like you're going into a situation, um, you know, in school, if you're doing a public speaking or doing a presentation at your work, typically people prepare for it and they know exactly what they're going to say, which could be great if everything goes extremely smoothly. However, how do you how can you show people to be like, hey, listen, I, I going in with this, you know, joke that worked at my last set. I'm starting to get into it, but this joke ain't working. So how mm -hmm. do you in your mind know how to, you know, transform or, you know, take a step back to reset so that you can make sure mm -hmm. the audience stays captivated throughout your entire speech, which I'm sure you run into every now and then. For sure. Well, I think let's just look at humor for a minute. So I have a several rules of humor. One, let's I don't ever laugh at my own jokes on stage. And the reason is, is one, it might not land. And sometimes I'll tell five or six jokes that don't land. And because they're expecting something very serious from me. And so I'll have to then prep the audience. I'm like, guys, that was a joke. You're welcome to laugh. And they go, oh, <laughs> actually, that was pretty funny. And so it's almost like, you, have, you know, for me, they weren't expecting it. So it wasn't there. But also, I don't want to be laughing at a joke, you know, and the audience doesn't laugh because I'm like, and so this happened. <laughs> and then nobody laughed, right? So I try to put no expectation or need on what the audience responses for my message. Plus I use humor to open the audience up and to bring their guard down. And so I'll use that to wait and they'll even laugh and I won't laugh, but I'll wait for the moment for them to be very open to then drop the idea into that because your heart sort of opens up with humor. But the other side of this too is what people forget is that there's the, how many repetitions and how many reps have you put in, in doing this? How many, how many open mic nights, like a comedian, they go out there and, and they tr test out jokes over and over and over again to see what lands and what doesn't. And through that process of repetition, they learn their timing of what's happening. So there's a timing involved, but you know, the, the great, the, the best analogy is it takes about, it takes about 30 days to develop 10 minutes of material. And so if you want to do an hour, it's about six months of work. That's if you put in a lot of time and energy of effort to do it right. And that means you're testing, you're, pro, you're, you're, you're trying things out. A lot of my ideas on stage, I'll sit with for two to three years before they really release them out there. And I'll test the pieces, but I'll test them on podcasts like this. I'll do, you do, you know, if I'm, I'm, I'm at another event and someone's say, Hey, can you come by and say a few words? I usually, if I'm available, I'll say yes, just because it gives me another rep, another opportunity to test something. And it gives me, it keeps me sharp in that. And so it's, it's, it's about getting the timing and the time put in and the, and the, just like whatever business you're in, you got to put the time in and you got to put the effort in uh, those, you know, that proverbial 10,000 hours. Yeah. I mean, it only takes, I think like a few hours to learn something, but obviously you've been doing something for 30 years all day, every day. 
Um, no, no matter how much time I put in, I am not going to be on your level. And that's okay. However, I could still take what you're teaching people. Well, why, hold on, why, take why is that? Why is that? I mean, I could show you a video right now that show me a few years ago Let that I was nowhere there. But I mean, you put the time in and you put the same amount of effort and time in, you'll be on your level, which might even be higher than mine. You know, that's, that's the beauty of this is that people aren't born this way. They're made. Does that make sense? Yes. And I, I, I agree with, I could get to your level, but if I don't put the time in, I'm, I'm not going to get there. But right. for, for someone in that situation, like for me, like, could I be a public speaker one day? Absolutely. Do I need to put in the time and put in the steps? Yeah. And what I'm getting at is, of course, you know, this is a learned skill. Like anyone can learn to do what you do. And that's what you're so phenomenal at teaching people. Like I remember seeing a video where you're working with someone and you taught them about like that little button on the ground, like mm -hmm. press that little button. And you're like teaching them to like get up there on the stage, present yourself, just wait a second. And then you're like hit this button <clears> and then begin. So little tips like that is what you teach people, you know, such as myself, I just stumbled across the video. I was like, brilliant idea. Like, yeah, it's what's fun when you start realizing that there's a congruency and with the, the, the button, the play button, if you, if I think you're referring to is, is a congruency with words and body. And just like when you have a new point in PowerPoints uh, on a PowerPoint side, you go to a new slide that creates a little bit of hit of dopamine. It changes the stimulus and it shows there's a new idea. Well, your body is the same way. If you don't, if you don't move on stage, then there's, you get stagnant, but then there's purposeful and functional movement, which is where I've got one idea and I might give this idea here. And then I move over here to give another one. And so there's that, that place. And then also how to begin a conversation. You know, the idea is there's a play button in front of you. And the moment you take a step forward is when you begin speaking, you don't speak when you're standing still and then move or you don't move forward and then wait two seconds and then start speaking. But there's this beautiful sort of starting point where you lean into your audience at the same time that, that creates a, a really cool, what it does, it, it creates a sense of massive confidence that you're moving towards your audience. Yeah, and it's, um, to me, it almost seems like a, uh, it's like a trigger. It's like you allow yourself to get on the stage, give yourself a moment, bring it in. Then you take that step forward and you're like, all right, now I'm in the game. Yeah. Um, so it gives you like that mental clarity. And I, you made a golf analogy earlier. So it's like getting behind your golf ball, mm. taking a deep breath before you go to the ball versus just like, if I hold everything in, I run up to the ball. I just go up there and swing. Who knows where that thing's going to end up? So it's like setting, Absolutely. so what you're saying is like setting the tone for the beginning of a speech. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's super cool. And like with your voice, are you doing like every day do you do like exercises almost like you can work out your body you can work out your mind your voice is also a muscle like are you doing exercises every day to help with that but i i used to do a lot of them now i'm just i speak all the time and so it's more of just an aware in the beginning now it's just who i am so there's no f there's no intention it's just this is the baseline but there's a is if you create intention and you um are self-aware of what's going on to be what's going on. Like, I'll give you an example, like say, good morning, everyone. Try that once, say that once. Good morning, everyone. All right, so now be intentional. Try to intentionally drop your voice and go, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Right, and so now you have a lower voice. Now go even deeper, 
and just 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 for just for faking it right we're, we're faking this so just fake it pretend like you have a deeper voice good morning everyone so now that's more nasally if you know it's good morning right i want you to think deeper almost stand up tall but go deep find that deep voice right and let it resonate good morning everyone Okay, so you have to practice that, right? <laughs> yeah, so, I obviously suck at it, but that's okay. No, it's not, but that's how we all begin, right? And so of when course. you can, if you if you do, if you think about the deep voice, you know, you can start really playing with the intonations around what's happening. And sometimes when we get excited, I'll come up higher, right? And so you ha that's the dynamic range of where you are, and all of it serves a purpose, by the way. And we don't, we just don't want to be monotone where it doesn't, it doesn't, we flatline. Because after when we flatline in our voice, we people tend to tune it out. But the reason they tune it out is, and it's the reason that we get bored is there's no fluctuating stimulus. We need fluctuating stimulus, and so that's why colors are good and pictures are good. A voice and auditory, you know, there's visual. There's we use multiple different <clears throat> ways of communicating so that we keep interest in there. And those would be little subtle hits of dopamine every time novelty happens. A little bit of dopamine gets secreted. So staying monotone can definitely ruin someone's presentation. Is there like something simple someone can do other than practice to like help make sure like, because if I talk the whole podcast like this, I got Renee on here, you know, no one's going to listen to it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one, I tell people record yourself often. It's one of the first things I started doing at 18 years old. I was told by a voice recorder. That was back then we had to like little cassettes. And listen to every presentation and you start developing a self-awareness of, oh my God, I sound nasally or, oh my God, I sound monotone. I, I sound dead. Well, that was actually good. What did I do there? And then you start creating this feedback loop for yourself and you will self-correct. And, but you gotta, you gotta get past the fact that, oh, I hate my voice. Well, guess what? That's your voice. Just cause you hate, you're, you're listening through it, through the, the vibrations in your jaw and your cranium. It does sound different. So then you have, but, but the more you listen to it, the more that starts kind of coming together as one. Like what I hear on podcasts now when I hear recordings is the same thing I hear now. So I hear the same exact thing. I don't have like, oh my God, I, that's my voice. That's, that's not there because I've, you've just, just done it so many times. And the more you record yourself and video is the same thing. So you can see your physical body as you move. Where's your eye contact and, and all of those things. So you, you've got to be able to record yourself to create that feedback loop to see where you are and, and what changes you can make. Yeah, and that could be the toughest part because like when you first do it, it's scary. You know, you're taking the video, you're just like, I'm talking to the camera. However, once you start doing that, like you can start to see what kind of filler words that you use. Like if I keep saying like over and over as an example, that's a filler word you want to avoid because you don't want to keep saying the same words or the ums or your nose. Those little, I guess, would they be like nervous triggers that people have and they don't even realize they're doing it that they can easily remove from their public speaking to help them look more confident, such as yourself? Yeah, the, <clears throat> there's two pieces to it. One, the ums, ums and then filler words. They're, they're a little bit different. They come from two different places. One, the ums are from a belief system. It's weird. They go, you want to stop umming, you got to change what you believe. Like, how does that have to do? I said, well, okay, so why do you um? Because you believe what? Silence is what? Bad. And if you believe that silence is bad, the moment silence happens when you're talking, you're going to go, this belief system goes, uh-oh, this is bad. Start making noise. So we open our mouth. Uh, 
And then you realize your conscious brain goes, dude, you're not saying anything. Close your mouth. Um, and now that weird word of um comes out. Um, and instead of just pausing with a belief system that pauses are really powerful, just like that. And so when you look at the pause as a highlighter to what it is that I'm about to say, now all of a sudden you start realizing that those little spaces are what make things really powerful. So when you start realizing that pauses are really, really important thing, those are like highlighters. And so if you give it spaces, you realize that those things are really powerful. Now that was the same phrase with no pauses. We didn't know what to land on. We didn't know what to really get. But when we realize that pauses are like highlighters and they are, they accentuate and give the brain an opportunity to paint a picture of what's happening. Now you see those, those little mini pauses that aren't predictable. They're dynamic. You want them to be unpredictable because you don't want to be predictable in your cadence because then it becomes like droning, right? Or just kind of like you, you, you put you to sleep. And there are some people that have a certain cadence and how they certain say things and what, what, then they end. And then they come up in here and then they go here and then they end. And all of a sudden it's just like, it's just kind of like hypnotic and it puts you to sleep. So you want to be somewhat unpredictable in that. And so the now the filler words like, you know, right? Typically come from uh, this need for validation. You need the audience to be engaged. You're a little insecure about what you're saying. It shows that you're not fully confident and you want to make sure that they're buying into everything you're saying, right? You know? You know what I mean? And there's this, this You know stuff what I'm saying? This, yeah. And so they keep telling me so I can feel good about myself. So instead, if you're authoritative and you understand and you truly believe in what's going on, you're not needing that feedback. Now, you're wanting an engaged look, but all I need is, do I, do I, do I see an audience that's engaged? Am I seeing the, the signs that they're participating and they're listening. And so you start paying attention for other, those things instead of asking for it in, in those sort of those crutch words, filler words. That totally reminds me of, I was listening to something by Dave Chappelle and he was talking about like, how do you come up with these great jokes, Dave? And he's like, when I learned that silence is the secret that's when I truly mastered my art is in that silence. When you have the crowd right where you want them, you get to the punchline and you do that little pause and they're like, what's going to happen next? You like mm -hmm. you take it audience that's unengaged <clears throat> and bring them back in, especially 100%. if you have a little sleepy audience, which <clears throat> no matter how good you are, sometimes you're going to have a sleepy audience. Well, you've got two ingredients that are happening with, <clears throat> with pauses and with inflection. So the inflection is creates a sense of novelty and novelty secretes dopamine, but you also need norepinephrine. You need dopamine and norepinephrine are sort of the key ingredients for what causes us to pay attention. And norepinephrine is often created through tension. And so just a little bit of silence creates an ounce of tension, which captures our attention. But it's also novel because if I've been talking the whole time and I stop, now all of a sudden, what happened? It's almost like, if you fall asleep through the TV and that TV's going and the TV and somebody turns it off and you wake up where it should be the opposite, but, but no, it's not because you wake up when the TV's turned on because it's a change in stimulus. You wake up when the TV goes off because it's a change in stimulus, not because it's loud. It could be loud and I get used to this and I habituate to the loud and all of a sudden it goes quiet. I'm like, what's going on? It's like, for me, if like an air conditioner, I need, I need, I sleep with a fan and noise. I need an air conditioner. I need that sort of brown noise. And if it's on there, I can fall asleep. So if the moment it turns off, I'm just like, right, change in stimulus. 
yeah, going through that with my four four month year old daughter right now. Four month daughter. She yeah. needs noise. Without noise, she ain't going to sleep. And as soon as the noise turns off, freaks out. So it's the same thing. Up. Yeah. So the same sort of deal there. And that's super cool with everything that you got and how you've taken the time to not just learn it, but to go into the psychology of it, such as like knowing what dopamine is and norepinephrine and things of that degree when it comes to like knowing how the human brain works. Well, it gives a foundation, it gives a foundation, right? It gives a foundation. Sorry to interrupt, but it it gives you beyond theory. It says, okay, this is a science to this. And if the science makes logical sense, I think people gravitate towards it more instead of just, here's an idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, so when you're like building a presentation, like someone who's listening to this podcast right now, maybe they have really good ideas. They don't know how to present them. What are the like the best sort of visuals someone can present to like keep someone engaged other than you get to a company meeting, they pop up in a PowerPoint, and then you're just like, oh no, here's another PowerPoint. Yep. Well, people hate PowerPoint because of how it's used. PowerPoint's innocent. It's the user. And now I'm not a big fan of PowerPoint because of for those reasons, but you have to think first what the purpose of PowerPoint is. It's a visual aid. It's an aid to what you're saying. It's not a teleprompter, meaning it shouldn't have everything you need to say up there. Then why do you, why are you there then? If you need to read all the 17 bullet points, why are you there? You're not needed. And so the, and the, the science behind it, which is fascinating, is what happens when you, when you put bullet points on a slide, you're, secreting, you're, you're triggering two tiny little specks in the brain called Broca's area and Wernicke's area. Those are tiny little specks in the brain that barely light up and their job is to decipher language. And that's it. That's not the response you want in a presentation. Okay, I <laughs> no, read it. No, not at all. Okay, I read it. Uh-huh. You want people to light up and get excited, feel emotional. You want their, their somatosensory input or a cortex to, to, to go nuts. You want them to start feeling like they need to move. You want to create vision. You... All of that stuff happens through visuals and story. And so if, like a lot of my PowerPoints, people say, can you send me the deck? I'm like, yeah, but it's not gonna mean anything to you. It's just a bunch of pictures. It's a bunch of one words. I mean, it's the story behind all that that makes sense. And unless you know the story, it just doesn't make any sense. And that comes from, you know, the typical corporate, well, send us the deck and the deck is sort of this, this structured presentation. Well, what I, I work with a lot of big corporations and they say, well, what if when they want the deck? I go, the deck can be available after your presentation. You don't show them the deck ahead of time. You create your presentation and then you create a deck, two different pieces, right? And the presentation is gonna be no words, it's gonna be story, it's gonna be higher level, conceptual, sell the concept and the idea of what's going on, get full engagement, create intrigue, and then say, for those that wanna learn more, here's the deck that you can read through. You're not really needed me for that one. But now I've, I've created the frame and I've got the clear direction of what's going on, but I'm not gonna sit there and walk you through you know, 40 slides with 17 bullet points on each slide. It just, it's just not what, not the thing. And now, now I also understand there are certain circumstances where people do make decisions based purely on logic, purely on data. That is usually if you're in the investment world, they don't, they don't want that. But that's also the misnomer because I also work with a lot of big investment bankers and people that are uh, helping, you know, uh, for shark tank type of experiences. I've been on shark tank type shows and 
what you'll find is, is the people that are, that are the best at this, meaning the ones that are looking to invest, they want the story. Yeah, give me the numbers. Just show me the playground. You want X, you want how much money for X percentage? I want to know how many you've sold. Like there's, there's only a few numbers they need to know. The rest is, who are you? Tell me about your story. Are you engaging? Do you, are you passionate? Are you somebody that's credible? And if I can show me all those things and the numbers make sense, great. You show me you're passionate, credible, and all those things, but your numbers don't make any sense, it doesn't work. Or you show me numbers that make sense, but you're bull, dull, dry, and boring. I'm like, mm. like it's this beautiful marriage between both of those pieces, what we would call ethos, pathos, and logos, right? Your ethos is your credibility. You need to be credible. Pathos would be the passionate or emotional appeal. You got to make me passionate about what's going on. I need to see that passion in your eyes because you're going to have to wake up in the middle of the night to solve some problems if I'm going to be partnering with you. And the, the logos, it's got to make logical sense. It's got to be financially sound. And if I can get those, that three-legged stool of ethos, pathos, and logos that comes from Aristotle, then all of a sudden, okay, that's a fuller argument. And I, it's a fuller message. And I can actually act on it. Totally. And that is something I've actually been studying and rereading all of Warren Buffett's annual shareholder letters. And the one thing that people don't realize, yeah, I mean... He's got a lot of money on on paper. What has been something that has defined him is he's really good at identifying people to partner with that are one really good people, and secondly, if he goes off for three or four or five, six months, and he comes back, he knows they're still going to be there because they're credible, and they have high moral character, which is something a lot of people going into a business deal, they're like, how much money does it make? All right, the numbers look good. Let's do it. That's, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's. There's a lot of factors <clears throat> that play into those elements, but it's also the foundation of what makes a good presentation. You you know, it's like for me. Would you take a class from me on how to grow rich and thick hair? Probably wouldn't. I'd take your class over mine. So it doesn't matter <laughs> how great my presentation is. I mean, I could, I, I could be a better storyteller. I could have better presence and I can have a great following. I can do all sorts of things, but they're going to be like, dude, you have no hair. It's like somebody who's overweight teaching you how to lose weight. Doesn't work. Somebody's broke teaching you how to make money. Doesn't work. So that's the ethos. You have to, you have to have credibility in the subject matter. And I, I'll, I'll make the joke sometimes, you know, and to really illustrate ethos and um, well, I say I'm doing a, a free class on, on the menstrual cycle and the challenges that women go through and really what they're getting wrong about the menstruation cycle. And they're like, for, for one, they'll be not paying attention. The women will be like, and they'll look up at me like I'm crazy. Did he just say that? And, and then of course, like, and then some of them will laugh and, but I have no business teaching a class like that. And there's a lot of classes I have no business teaching because I have no ethos, no credibility. And so the, you have to have that sense. And it's <clears throat> very similar to somebody who's brand new in a business that tries to act as an expert. It's like, that's not your ethos. Don't be the expert when you're new. Be the young, hungry, hardest working one in the room. There's your ethos. And then really soon you'll develop an expertise and you can transition that to an expertise, an expert ethos. But right now, be the, be the most innovative, be the hungriest, be the hardest worker, be the one that's, that's willing to be resourceful. That is just as valuable. There's other experts, like your, your, your manager might be an expert and you're the one that's running out. So then you're the quarterback of the transaction. And so lots of really cool things to think about when it, when it comes to that. Some people think, well, I'm new. There's no ethos. I'm like, no, 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 you just don't have expert ethos. There's a million other things that you can choose from.
what was uh do you recall when you made that transition to get that credibility was there like a defining moment that allowed you to take that next step forward i don't know if it's a defining moment um because there it's such a slow transition to to do that and there's no like it happened here right i mean there are defining moments where I stepped up to something bigger than I thought I was capable of doing and I did just fine or I, I did better than expected or I did the best. And those are like moments where you define your own identity where you go, okay, hold on a second. Maybe I do belong at this table. We all go through that. And, you know, I, the, you know the, the, the popular uh, imposter syndrome term right now, which is just stupid. But, you know, it's, it's stupid because we all have imposter syndrome. We all feel a in, in, in little bit insecure, like an imposter in new things. But that only happens when you've leveled up in something. If you've leveled up in some area of your life, then you're going to feel like, holy shit, am I qualified? And the reason you feel that way is because at first you are. <laughs> at first you're new at this. And that's an okay thing. So I tell people, grab a pad of paper and a pen and study and learn and listen for two weeks. After two weeks, Oftentimes, you're going to find out that these people don't know what the hell they're doing either. And there's a reason you were brought in. And then you can come in and start offering more ideas. But if you just learn and realize that you can student your way through that imposter syndrome in the beginning, that it does go away. And if if it really truly is the feeling that comes up when I've leveled up, then shouldn't I be seeking it every day? I should be seeking that feeling every day. I should be pushing myself out of my zone every single day. I should be feeling like an imposter, taking on bigger things. Like, who am I to be doing that? And then all of a sudden you realize you can. It's a great quote that says, I admire the person who bites off more than, bites off more than they can chew and then chews it. Definitely. Definitely heard that one before. Or, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time is one I've heard as well. And I, that's a super important message that you just alluded to because people are going to come to you to solve their problems and you may not have the answer right now however you can figure out the solution to their problem faster and better than them so that doesn't mean you don't know what you're doing you do you just we don't all have all the answers right then and there we're not we're not a machine yeah absolutely so that's that's definitely something, you know, me personally, I've struggled with. And I'm sure a lot of people have struggled with. Now with speaking and what you got going on in your business, like from where you started to where you are now, like what does your speaking organization look like so people can get a better understanding of the work that you put in to get to where you currently are to develop this uh, unconventional way of making a living? Uh, when you're talking about how do I structure a speech or talk? Like your organization. Like how does your organization look? Because obviously. My business? The business? Yeah, or, yeah business wise. Okay, yeah. yeah. So the we've got about, I think, seven or eight people. I got to go through the math. A team of seven people. We've got myself who's doing this and on the road and speaking. We've got my, my wife who's our CEO. She runs the business. She's looking at... Um, she acts almost like a handler and an agent. So a lot of the deals will go through her. She'll vet people out. She'll talk to them. And, um, you know, right now we're, we're the thing that we have least amount is time. And so we have to be really cautious about how we spend our time, what we do, what we engage in, not because we're, we're, be, we're 
better than anything. It's more over, I've got a team to, to run and I've got to be able to make sure that they get paid and I'm the sole earner for this team. And so I have to be deployed, like almost like a, like an airplane. I guess I'm just, I'm just like a tool, right? I got to be deployed correctly. And, and we've got three people that manage our calendar. So there's, there's a lot of effort that goes into the calendar. There's the calendar for events and all of the projects and all the things that go into managing the event. And then there's our, my, you know, my calendar outside of events that would be, you know, during the workday, but then there's a personal calendar as well. And so how do we do that? And sometimes we have to take from the personal to give to the business. Sometimes we have to take from the business to give to the personal. And so it, it, it does take three people to sort of manage that because there's just so much um, demand on it at the moment, which is uh, not complaining. It's the, it's, I'm very, very grateful to be in the position, but it, it's just a new struggle. Just like anything, when you didn't have the business, it's a struggle. When you have it, it's a struggle. You're always, it's, it's part of life. You're going to have to go through it. And so we've got Jenny, who's our VP of operations, uh, and events probably, I mean, she's, she's basically our chief operating officer and we just haven't made that official yet. So if you're listening, Jenny, Hey, welcome. You're, 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 uh, promoted. Way to but, go, Jenny. Um, yeah. We got George who created our, um, logo and not just created a logo. He's the one that created our logo with the neuro in it, but he does all of our creative direction. And, um, we, we, I think we have a pretty cool competitive advantage to be able to, to spin out great content really fast and imagery and visuals. Um, we've got, uh, Mo Ismail who doesn't work for me, but he's, he's, he's our extended team that does all of our social media short form content. So I record, like I'm recording this, this will get in his hands and then they'll chop up little pieces of this for it to, to go out. And then, um, we've got, um, uh, Sophia who runs our events. She works directly with Jenny and we've got, um, Oh man. Oh, Drew, Drew Carroll, who's, who's our, basically our chief marketing officer and runs our funnels and stuff. And so, yeah, so we're, we've got a lot of stuff happening all at once. Yeah. And a lot of people believe they may need like this large team to allow them to succeed or to do everything that they want to do. However, that that's not always the case, such as you have a team of about eight or nine, you said, and having that close knit group and having every person in the right place, essentially focusing uh, at a basketball coach, he would always say, do what you do. Nothing more and nothing less. And is that what has allowed you to prosper by figuring that out? Was, was it like a struggle to figure it out? Well, I think it's it's an evolving struggle to figure out what what everybody should be doing, and and then people grow, and then they're, what they should be doing changes because they're better at it, and then realizing what I should and shouldn't be doing, and you know, I'm somebody that that likes to keep my hands in the mix on things, which probably isn't good, because then I don't allow people to do that the, the what they do, and so it's I'm learning, and I've got a coach that helps me sort of get out of the business and and allowing other people to take over certain areas and. It's uh, it's a constantly evolving process. Totally. We had Ari Mizell on here, and that's something he's been teaching people is uh, like asynchronous communication, making sure you're not in too many meetings. And essentially as the sole provider, as you said, basically you are the draw. Like if I'm coming to an event, it's your name up there. I expect you to be on stage. However, 
if you have the right team in place, all you got to do is show up and deliver on your message and be that, I don't want to say like musician, but you're basically the draw. You're basically the artist people are coming to see. And by keeping you out of the business allows you to consistently think and work through everything so that you can continually to evolve because what you're doing in 2023 isn't what you're going to be doing in 2033 with your speaking business. Otherwise you're going to you know, be outdated and you're not going to be, you're not a speaker that's going to be outdated based on what I know about you. It's a, it's a constant struggle. That's for sure. I mean, it's a constant opportunity. Let me, let me rephrase that. It's a constant opportunity to, to do that, but it's, it definitely is conscious. We have to think innovation and we have to really be in touch with what's happening in the market, what's happening with our customers and our clients and what are they facing and and assessing what shifts can we make through the process because the you know you're on stage not to regurgitate information you're on stage to to make an impact and that impact is directly correlated with what's relevant to them and so staying relevant and, and really listening so when you talk about like when i prepare a talk it's more listening than preparing because i'm i'm always talking so i have content but what what which content do i share and so that's more of a listening game than anything and you mentioned earlier you do a lot of, uh, you help out a lot of large corporations, correct? Mm -hmm. Since you've started, like how have you, what's the biggest difference from where you started to now that you're seeing in, in corporate America with how you're, you know, helping these organizations grow and thrive with their, with their people? I'd say the biggest difference, I mean, 30 years ago, talking about human emotion was a no, no. It was weird. Nobody did it. It wasn't as accepted. It was seen as touchy feely. And now it's at the core of, of the business and everyone's talking about emotional intelligence. And, you know, one, it gives us an advantage because it's not new to us. We've been doing it for 30 years plus. And, you know, so we have more experience on it, but it's, it's interesting to see the, the appetite for it and the understanding that it's that people aren't just cogs in a wheel. They're, they're people with choices. They're people with emotion. They're people that need more than just a paycheck. They need connection. They need meaning. And for leaders to realize that, and they start realizing that the old school leadership style of just get your butt to work and you know, you're paid, paid to work isn't working the same. And that's frustrating to a lot of people. And I get it. I mean, it's like, because we grew up, you, you get paid, you go to work, you don't complain. You're lucky to have a job. But now people have choices. And it's like, ugh. So how are they evolving to this new workplace? And, and how do they evolve in a way that, that drives the value versus just, just being tolerating of somebody? I'm not saying I'm, tolerance in, in that context is a good thing, but how do I just, I'm not saying tolerate mediocrity because we don't want to tolerate mediocrity, but how do I evolve and truly drive the value out of a, of a generation that is bringing new ideas to the table while instilling some of the old school work ethic and so there's a beautiful marriage that can happen if it's done right. Love that. And with that, that's the end of the Unconventional Money Moves podcast. Super happy to have Renee on. I'm going to get this posted because you have the upcoming free event, which for you is rare, November 7th with Coach Michael Burt. I'm going to get this out there. If you just go, get better at speaking. We'll get and, you a link. Yeah, we'll get you a link. And thanks for coming on, Renee. Bye. Thank you so much.